I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Tiffany Bates. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, we're talking about the Supreme Court's recent grants and denials, and we'll interview Chief Judge Stephen Dillard. We're excited to announce that SCOTUS 101 is now part of the Ricochet Audio Network. Woohoo! So welcome to all of our new listeners. We hope you'll stick around. Um, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode, and please rate us if you enjoy listening. So, Tiffany, did you see there was a big election this week? I, I've heard. Yeah, so following the election in Alabama, we've heard some speculation on Twitter that Justice Anthony Kennedy might consider stepping down before the 2018 election. Some people are saying that if the Democrats take the Senate, then they might try to hold any SCOTUS vacancy open until after the 2020 presidential election. Oh, that's a very long time. That is a very long time indeed. I think this just means that um, Don McGahn needs to you know, get a judicial nominee for every single vacancy, <laughs> and then we need to, to get them to the Senate before 2018. So we're going to be keeping a, a close eye on that, situ- on that situation, and we'll report back on any whisperings that we hear in the wind that Justice Kennedy is, in fact, thinking about retiring. Yes. Um, so the Supreme Court issued um, a bunch of grants and a few denials um, this week. Elizabeth, what, are, what, they, what did they um, agree to hear? So, yeah, the court issued its last set of regular orders for the year, taking up six new cases. Some of them are uh, kind of boring. Some of them are moderately interesting, so we'll run through them quickly. The uh, first is a contracts clause dispute involving a revocation upon divorce statute. There are two cases involving sentence reduction under the sentencing guidelines range. There's an in-rem jurisdiction and tribal sovereign immunity case. This sounds fascinating. And then uh, we get to the two interesting ones. So the question presented in this case does not sound terribly interesting, but if you get into the facts, <laughs> it, it is... It is. Uh, there's more more to the eye. Yeah, Elizabeth sent it to me and was like, this is so interesting. And I thought she was being um, facetious, but she was not. No. So the issue is whether the Ninth Circuit erred in reviewing an interlocutory challenge to pretrial physical restraints. So what happened here is the en banc Ninth Circuit ruled that a district court's policy of shackling prisoners in the courtroom violates the Constitution. And the, the court would require the U.S. Marshal Service to unshackle and reshackle each defendant. Um, so I thought that just kind of piqued my interest. And then I saw that Arizona Senator Jeff Flake filed a cert stage amicus brief in the case, uh, pointing out that the district courts along the southern border are the highest volume criminal jurisdictions in the country, and that this ruling would require the U.S. Marshal Service to divert their marshals from doing things like, you know, catching fugitives, protecting judges, working with local law enforcement to combat violent crime, to instead uh, be on hand to provide more courtroom security. Um, so I thought it was kind of more more there than uh, than the question presented might, uh, uh, might have initially looked like, and I, I'm going to watch it with interest. And then the court can't get enough of gerrymandering. <laughs> really, really can't. The court is taking up a partisan gerrymandering case out of Maryland. So this is, uh, the court didn't really have much say because this was a direct appeal from a three uh, district judge panel. So uh, the jurisdictional statement, I thought it, it read, um, it was a, an interesting read. So it, it starts out, I'm going to read a little bit from it. This case is unlike any previous challenge to partisan gerrymandering, uh, like the Wisconsin one, I guess. Um, It does not invoke the Equal Protection Clause in any respect. It does not rest upon 
statistical measures of partisan imbalance, which, as we learned from the Wisconsin oral argument, Chief yes, Justice Roberts chief. is very skeptical about uh, statistics. <laughs> uh, and continuing, it says, it does not ask the court to adopt any new doctrinal frameworks or approve any new legal standards. This case relies instead entirely upon a time-tested, ju- judge-approved legal framework, the First Amendment Retaliation Doctrine. So what happened here is several voters from uh, Maryland's 6th District, or what used to be Maryland's 6th 6th District, alleged that state officials, including former Governor Martin O'Malley, intended to dilute the votes of Republicans because they had supported Republican uh, Roscoe Bartlett for 20-plus years. So following the 2010 census, map drawers reshuffled half of the district's 720,000 residents, resulting in a 90,000 voter uh, voter swing in favor of Democrats. So that is the issue there, and uh, we're going to be watching this this case closely. So my favorite case out of the orders was a denial. Um, so the court denied to review an interesting wife-swapping case <laughs> out of Louisiana. So in Coker v. Whittington, there were two sheriff's deputies, and they, you know, as one does, discovered that they were in love with each other's wives. Um, so decided, you know, just to swap them. Um, along with their families, which I'm not exactly sure how I hope that I works. hope there were not young children involved and that these were, you know, adult children. Yeah, I'm, I don't know. Um, but they decided to move in with each other's spouses while their respective divorces were pending. Um, and so their boss, the sheriff, ordered them to cease living together. And if they didn't do so by a certain date, they would be considered to have voluntarily terminated their employment. Um The sheriff said that they violated the sheriff's code of conduct, which states that deputies must conduct themselves at all times in such a manner as to reflect the high standards of the sheriff's office and do not engage in any illegal, immoral, or indecent conduct, nor engage in any legitimate act, which, when performed in view of the public, would reflect unfavorably upon the sheriff's office. Um, So the two officers sued, and they said this code violated their rights under um, their rights of association and that it was unconstitutionally vague. The district court um, found against them and said that the code was supported by um, the rational grounds of preserving a cohesive police force and upholding the public trust and reputation of the sheriff's department. Yeah, I mean, you can imagine how this could go south, and then you'd have pretty uh, two pretty surly employees under your uh, under your watch. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the Fifth Circuit affirmed that in a short opinion written by Judge Edith Jones. Um, and she wrote that there was abundance of case law that supported the proposition that sexual decisions between consenting adults could take on a different color when the adults are law enforcement officers. Um, and she said there were no deci- decisions that suggested that um, deputies um, as law enforcement Officers have a constitutional right to associate with each other's spouses before <laughs> formal divorce. Um, and she refused to extend uh, Lawrence v. Texas to the, the well, that case had um, expanded substantive constitutional rights relating to personal sexual choices. This didn't mean that um, um, it uh, mandated a change in policy when it came to. Um, public employees, especially in light of Garcetti, a 2006 case, which said that public employees um, necessarily shed some of their constitutional rights as exchange um, for the privilege of their positions. And she also 
refused to extend Obergefell, um, said whatever um, ramifications Obergefell have for sexual relationships uh, beyond the approval of same-sex marriage, Obergefell does not create rights based on relationships that mock marriage. Um, So while the court refused to take this case, I think it's safe to say that um, this issue may eventually make its way up to the court. Again, maybe not precisely in the wife-swapping context, (laughs) um, but similar living-type type type situations. Yeah, there was the polygamy case from uh, a while ago, and I I, I guess it it never went anywhere. Uh, I remember the district court ruling, and I guess it was out of, I think, Utah, um, but I don't remember what happened there. So I guess we'll have to check back on that. Yeah, I think they See if there it, are any other uh, polygamy cases that are uh, making their way through through the courts. Yeah, there might be. So interestingly, do you remember there was the show Wife Swap? Yes. Yeah, so uh, that was on for like nine or ten seasons. I wonder if, if Judge Jones is, is familiar with the TV show or it's related um, – spinoff, the Celebrity Wife Swap. Oh, no. They were some, uh, I'm not sure you'd call them celebrities. I guess D-list celebrities. So (laughs) you can can check out the full list on Wikipedia. (laughs) Anyway, also from the denials list was uh, Evans versus Georgia Regional Hospital from the 11th Circuit. And this is whether Title VII sex discrimination includes sexual orientation. So Title VII of the the Civil Rights Act of 1964 prohibits discrimination in employment uh, based on a whole host of characteristics, including sex. And during the Obama administration, the EEOC began interpreting uh, this prohibition on sex discrimination to include sexual orientation. So Congress never actually changed uh, Title VII, um, but this was a was an you know an interpretation that the EOC had been following. Um, so now we have we had in the Seventh Circuit uh, we had the Hively case last spring, which was the first one to conclude uh, first federal court to conclude that Title VII extends to sexual orientation discrimination, and um, and then there was the the Second Circuit case Zarda, which is still uh, still alive, and then the Eleventh Circuit case, which. At the panel stage, I think both of them um, went against the expansive definition, uh, interpretation of sex discrimination to include sexual orientation discrimination. So the court is not quite ready to get involved in uh, in this issue. But the as I mentioned, the Second Circuit case is still alive. It's before the en banc, um, so the full court. And this is the Zarda case. And here, the uh, the Sessions Justice Department filed an amicus brief, um, which was conflicting with the EEOC's uh, expansive interpretation of Title VII. So it's kind of interesting that we had dual federal government interpretations of the same statute. So I think uh, we're waiting on a decision from the en banc Second Circuit. So that that could be uh, a, a way for this issue to still come before the justices. Yeah, I think it's it's pretty clear they're just letting this filter throughout the, the circuit courts. But I, I bet they'll, they'll take one of them. Yeah, I mean, they like to let things kind of percolate for a while. So we'll, uh, we'll keep an eye on this. We're pleased to have Chief Judge of the Georgia Court of Appeals, Stephen Dillard, with us today. Welcome to SCOTUS 101, Chief. It is my pleasure. Um, so you're one of a handful of judges really active on Twitter. What value do you think the judges on Twitter has for the legal community or the public at large? So I, I think one of the main things, the value of having judges, I mean, let's let's step back for a second and think about how we view judges in the past. When I was a young lawyer, and I would see a judge in an event, speaking to a judge was like a frightening experience <laughs> because judges were up here, right? I mean, they're these these figures, these almost otherworldly figures, <laughs> and you just don't talk to them, and they wear the robes, and they don't socialize a whole lot. I think 
with social media and and the way voters engage with public officials, I think that's been transformed. And I think more and more what you see are people demanding accessibility to the people that serve them. I actually think this is one aspect of our life that makes a lot of sense because we're public servants. We're judges. Whether we're federal, whether we're state, we're accountable to the people. So I use my Twitter account primarily to educate the people of Georgia about their intermediate appellate court. It's not necessarily a sexy topic, (laughs) but we decide a lot of really important cases, uh, civil and criminal, that impact a lot of people. Georgia is a massive state. We've got 10.5 million people. We are a down-ballot elected official. I was appointed, and then I ran for election. And so how does someone like me communicate to my constituents? It's not like I'm flush with campaign cash. (laughs) Um, So one way I can do that, and that's the beauty of social media platform, is I can talk about I can say, hey, we we now have live streaming of our oral arguments. You can watch our oral arguments. You can – I've written this article in Mercer Law Review about the inner workings of our court and how we process cases now. Does average – citizen of Georgia want to read about the inner workings of the Georgia Court of Appeals or do they want to watch oral arguments? Probably not. But the fact that it's there to me, that's about accessibility. That's about transparency. It's about being accountable to the people. So for me, social media primarily is about that. There are other aspects of it, too, that I really have enjoyed and that I don't know that I kind of foresaw when I started the account. I mentor a lot of uh, law students and young lawyers. I'll have people, you know, tweet me or DM me and ask me questions about clerkships or about, you know, what did you do when you were a young lawyer and you were presented with this challenge? I love that. I can I can help people and I can take a little bit of time out and mentor and encourage and and help young lawyers and and law students in a way that I would have never dreamt that I could have done that as a young lawyer. And so that to me is kind of the revolutionary aspect of Twitter and judges being on Twitter. I think there's a right way to do it. There's a wrong way to do it. Um, I I hope I do it the right way. I try (laughs) to do it the right way. But I, I think if you do it the right way, confidence in the judiciary is actually enhanced rather than diminished. That's, And I've written about all this. There's an article I wrote for Duke uh, um, about judges and social media. If you Google it, you can find it. But I mean, I talk a little more in detail about that, but that's that's the gist of it. It's also how um, we discovered you and invited you to, to come to SCOTUS 101 uh, via Twitter. So we're, we're glad that you're on Twitter. So Texas Supreme Court Justice Don Willett, soon to be Fifth Circuit Judge Don Willett, came under scrutiny recently for having a Twitter account at all. Um, even though his tweets are mostly about civics and his family, his, you know, his kids, they're, they're pretty cute. Um, as a judge, what are your ground rules for tweeting? No politics. No, no a lot of it's the same as Justice Willett. Um, no partisan shots. No, you know, I, I if you read my my feed, I talk a lot about kind of appellate geek stuff. I if there's an article that's interesting about, um, you know, a justice like a profile of Elena Kagan, I might say, oh, this is an interesting profile. I don't make any comments on it. I just pass it along. If there's an article about 
statistics of, you know, who's getting the or, you know, who's getting what lawyers are getting the most cert cases. I might I might do that. I do this thing called chambers music, a little running feature where I'll say this is the music that's playing in my chambers, whether it's the national or Radiohead or or whoever. <laughs> um, I do a lot of sports. I'm, I'm a big supporter of my alma mater, Sanford University. I'm a big Sanford football fan. Uh, I talk a lot about that. The, the The point of all this, and I mentioned this in the Duke article, is I want people to get a sense of who I am as a person. I talk about my wife, my kids. I talk. I do photos of my church. So it, it's meant to be. Some of it is informational, and some of it is is for people to kind of say, "Okay, I get a sense of who this person is as a human being." And so that's that's kind of the the, the point of the account. I think that's okay. I mean, I. Once again, I think this idea that judges aren't human, that we don't have lives outside of the courtroom, I think that's good for voters to see that and to get a sense of who we are as people. So that's I think Justice Willett's account is fantastic. I think he's the master of this. I am, you know, uh, he he's a little more out there with the humor, you know, and he's really funny. He, he's much better at dad jokes than I am. But I miss his account. Uh, I hope he will resume it once he's. Uh, rightly confirmed uh, to the Fifth Circuit, but he's he's really to me the master of uh, of judicial Twitter. <laughs> so uh, changing gears a little bit, I recently read that you once got into an argument with Justice Scalia during a Federalist Society conference about presidential power and the separation of powers. Can you tell us about it? That was an interesting day. So <laughs> early on, um, I would, this is the dark ages of the of the late nineties, and this was when the um, the Clinton and the Lewinsky scandal was going on, and we, there was a Federal Society CLE, Federalism and Separation of Powers, is the first time they'd ever done it. And the first hundred people that saw I got the email, and I immediately sent in my money and and went to, I believe the first one was in Colorado Springs. I actually went twice. It was so great. <laughs> and Justice Scalia taught it with Professor Baker um, at LSU. I don't know if he's still there, yeah, but he's a, yeah, he's he's a great, there. great professor. And so they taught it together. And so Justice Scalia was up there, and he was talking about the idea that the president is Article Two, And so me, thinking I'm the clever young associate who'd been out two or three years, I stood up and said, well, let me pose this hypothetical to you, Justice Scalia. Let's say President Clinton visits my hometown of Macon, Georgia. He kills someone in cold blood in the middle of the street. Are you telling me that the police can't arrest and take the president into custody? And he said, no. The president is Article Two. You have to impeach and remove him before you can charge him with any crime. I then said, well, you know, the, the Constitution talks about giving limited immunity to, to, to people in Congress. It doesn't say anything about the president. He was like, well, you don't understand separation of powers. <laughs> and then I pointed out that Raul Berger had written this really interesting law review article about this, taking the opposing view, and that while I was just a country lawyer, I thought that Raul Berger had a lot to say about this. Anyway, so we debated for a while. He said, you just don't understand separation of powers. The, the funny part was later on someone stood up. And he told that person that he didn't understand the Constitution at all. So I, I, I only didn't understand the separation of powers. But there's a, there's that's an ongoing debate about the president and and the president being. Or I have to say, over the years, I've come around a little bit to to Scalia's view, the idea that the, the president is, in a sense, the executive branch. And so I don't have to deal with those issues on the Court of Appeals. But it's interesting intellectually. There's people having that very debate today about the extent of, you know, what does it mean to be the president in the, in the sense of, you know, being Article 2 
you know, in, in the flesh. So it's kind of an interesting, but it was fascinating to be there. I went up to him afterwards and I said, you know, my buddies from Atlanta were with me and they were like, I can't believe <laughs> you just had the temerity to argue with Justice Scalia. And so I said, well, I better go apologize. And I went up to him and I said, Justice Scalia, I'm so sorry if I offended you with my question. He was like, nah, too many people kiss my hindquarters at these events. It was fun. I enjoy it. I'm glad you asked the question. So he said, you're wrong, but I'm glad you asked the question. Well, so. What a great memory. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so shifting gears a bit to your work as a judge. Yes. Is there an opinion you'd like to tell us about that you're proudest of, whether it's a majority opinion, a concurrence, a dissent? you had to pick one. Yeah, that's like asking me my favorite child. Uh, but <laughs> I, I would say probably my favorite is a dissent that I wrote in a case called In the Interest of J.E. It was a termina- termination of parental rights decision. And in that case, I, I, this was back when the court was 12 judges before we expanded to 15. I lost 11 to 1. I'd been on the court for about six months. And since that time, the court has come around to my view that is I went from losing to kind of, you know, building a majority view that is a lot closer to my view of how termination of parental rights jurisprudence ought to be in Georgia, kind of restoring it to what I believe is the original understanding of that right under both the Georgia Constitution, and the United States Constitution, taking seriously parental rights. And so that's probably the, the decision. I've had several since then, but that was the first one. So it was special. It's gratifying. Um, you wrote an entry on Justif, uh, Justice Joseph's story in the Great American Lawyers Encyclopedia. Why did you choose to write about him? And um, what was something interesting you learned in the course of your research? Oh, gosh, We're we big do, fans of Justice Story. We could do a whole, could do a whole show on, on, on Justice Story. We're big fans of Justice Story. So I am too. I have a, his portrait. I have a steel engraving of, of – you want to know – you want to geek out on, on Justice Story. I can do that because I have <laughs> – I actually own a lot of his books that he's mm-hmm. – I mean he's – first of all, he's prolific in terms of his, his writing. Most of the books that I had read were about his time as a justice and there was very – little written about his time as a lawyer. And, you know, he, he argued Fletcher versus Peck. Um, he had this really interesting practice, you know, going through the apprenticeship, you know, going through all of that. There's this great line in one of his biographies about him studying Cook's Institutes where he talks about how he wept many bitter tears reading those, you know, the books. And that after he that it was a difficult, you know, this whole process of kind of understanding Cook's Institutes was so hard, but that after he had finished, he breathed a pure air. <laughs> I love that. So uh, anyway, I, I've always just thought story was amazing. The fact that he was a Supreme Court justice, um, the fact that he served in the legislature, um, the fact that he um, wrote all of those commentaries. I actually own a first edition of his uh, commentaries oh, on the wow. Constitution, oh, three volume, 1833. Uh, I own his pleadings book that he wrote before he was a justice in like 1805. Um, so he's, he's just he was a genius. I mean, I think he was. And, you know, if you're a fan of Hamilton, you're probably likely to think highly of J- Joseph Story. The interesting thing about Story was he was obviously from Massachusetts and he was not a Federalist. He was a Republican, which is one of the reasons he got appointed to the Supreme Court. He was like, I think, the fourth choice. 
He was 32 when he joined the Supreme Court of the United States. And, um, you know, so he came in and then he aligned himself with John Marshall and the Federalist. And so it's kind of an interesting, but his view of the United States, you know, the, the idea that we needed to be a nation, the fact that, but while still respecting aspects of the states. And, and, and if you read the commentaries, there's really great commentary, you know, in terms of kind of discerning helping to understand near the time of the founding what a very prominent legal scholar who was born near the time of the founding and lived in the years in the act, you know, what he understood the text of the Constitution to mean. So it's it's he's just fascinating. I could talk about him forever, so I'll be quiet. <laughs> Maybe we'll have you back for a yeah, Joseph Story theme Special podcast. edition. We, we've geeked out with Ed Meese about Joseph Story many yeah, times. Yeah, he's fantastic. Um, so you were elected to the bench in 2012 after having been appointed by the governor in 2010. That's correct. So do you think judges who have to face the voters on a regular basis approach the law any differently from those who have life tenure? I don't think so. I mean, the only thing I could really think of, I mean, my view has always been that, that you know, the fact that I'm elected has no impact on how I rule in terms of the bottom line. Does it maybe color sometimes how I write things? Um, maybe so. But to me, that is a function of being directly accountable to the people and trying to write my opinions in a way that they can understand and in a way that sometimes expresses sympathy in very difficult cases where I have to rule where the outcome may seem very harsh, but that's what the law requires. So it might impact, I, I wouldn't say, to me it's not a matter of me being elected impacting how I write. It's more a matter of understanding that I am writing, I, I think there's a little more of a detachment between federal judges and the people they serve because they're not directly accountable to the people and because they have life tenure. I'm not saying that's a bad system. It's a different system. And so I like to write in a way, I try to write in a more conversational way. And one of the things I do when I'm writing my opinions is I do different layers of review. And one of those is kind of a readability. And I try to read it as if I were not a lawyer and say, if I were just reading this as a normal human being, right, <laughs> who has not been through law school, what would strike me as odd about? And if there's something odd, then I try to, to, to write it in such a way to explain why it may seem like an unjust result, but it's what the law and that the remedy for that, of course, is usually going to be through the legislature, not through the courts. Mm-hmm. So your colleague, Lisa Branch, has been nominated to yes. the 11th Circuit. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm in D.C. And her Senate confirmation hearing is this week. Yes. So can you tell us a little bit about your experience working with her? She's amazing. She, I, I am, you know, I have mixed feelings because uh, Lisa is like a sister to me. Judge Branch is like a sister to me. And we're very close. And I think she's an amazing judge. She's brilliant. She's hardworking. She's everything you want in a judge. Thoughtful, hardworking. Um, and so we're going to miss her at the Georgia Court of Appeals, but she is going to be a tremendous asset at the 11th Circuit. Um, I just think, I, I just think she is top notch. She's such a good choice. Um, my friend Kevin Newsom was recently. Uh, Kevin and I go back to our Sanford days. I was his pledge trainer at Sigma <laughs> Cot Sanford, so I know Kevin Newsom. It's it's interesting to see friends, you know, going to these different positions. But no, Lisa has her hearing tomorrow. I'm here to support her, and I just think the world of her. And I think it was a great choice by the president, and I expect her to be confirmed quickly. And she's going to do a great job. I'm going to miss seeing her on a daily basis, though. It's it's fun to have someone who shares. 
um, your judicial philosophy that you can bounce ideas off of. And we are mm-hmm. very close in terms of our judicial philosophy. Absolutely. Um, speaking of judicial philosophy, you clerked for Judge Daniel Mannion on the Seventh Circuit. He's a senior judge now. Uh, tell us what it was like clerking for him, and what's the most important lesson you learned from Judge Mannion? There's, there are many. Uh, judge Mannion is an incredible American. He uh, was an amazing boss. The, I wouldn't be the judge I am today without having had that experience. I actually got to clerk for two years, which is a little unusual at the federal appellate level. It's something he does. It's a little outside the box. Um, but I I had an amazing time. Judge Mannion, I think the, the, the most important thing I learned was that work-life balance and that family has to come first. If there was ever anything that came up with my family, he would say, you you, you go take care of your family. You go take care of your wife. You go to, At that time, I... I had it was my wife and my young son, uh, my now college son, Jackson. Uh, But, you know, he was like six when we were in South Bend. And so but if anything came up, even if it was something that normally I think a boss would be like, oh, you can deal with that after work. Judge Mannion was like, no, you need to deal with it. So he was amazing. The other quick story I'll tell you is I started clerking two weeks before 9-11. And uh, I'll never forget when 9-11 happened, I was, you know, I'd been there for like a week and a half. And uh, I remember being in my office and Judge Mannion coming in. He had, His chambers was separate from the clerk chambers. And so he came in and he looked at us and he had just kind of this very stoic look on his face. And he said, I know there's a lot of crazy things going on. Right now, I think the best thing we can do for the American people is to do our job. Now, they eventually kicked us out of the courthouse. But, I mean, that to me was such a Judge Mannion moment, you know, just stoic. We're going to get through this. You know, let's work for the American. I mean, such a just a dedicated public servant and just one of the finest men I've ever known. It was an honor to clerk for him. That's wonderful. So if you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? Joseph Story. I've got to, I hate to circle back to Joseph Story, but I'd want to talk with him about how in the world he found time. I guess because he didn't have an iPhone. He didn't have an iPhone. <laughs> he didn't have Twitter. Uh, he didn't have Twitter. But the fact that he was so prolific as a scholar, a teacher, a justice, um, you know, he was such a, a, a defender of property rights and, um, you know, a, a federalist vision for um our country and for the judiciary. I just think it'd be fascinating to sit down and talk with him. I mean, people don't know who Joseph Story is. That's that's what's so shocking is at the time he died, he was one of the most celebrated, well-known Americans. He, I mean, and now nobody knows. It's it's a humbling thing to think about that because mm-hmm. I think a lot of us that rise to these positions of judgeships you know, you think, oh, I'm this, you know, I'm hot stuff. And, you know, I go into the courtroom and one of the things I say is you see all these portraits around. These guys were chief judges. Most people can't name any of them. I mean, it's you only have that moment in time to kind of your I view the position I hold as a position of trust. And especially I think that in light of Justice Story, who was arguably one of our greatest Americans and very few people even know who he is outside the, the legal world and even in the legal world. A lot of people don't know who he is, which is sad. But I, I'm a big story fan, so story. I'd be tempted to 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 see Scalia again because he yeah. had a tremendous influence on my jurisprudence, textualism and originalism. I actually got to spend some time with him outside that CLE. He visited Macon at one point. I got to spend the day with him, and so and I wrote an essay about him, 
Justice Scalia for a book called Great American Judges. Um, and so I, I dealt with him in doing that, and I just met him at several um, Federal Society events. But he he was a you know I was a great admirer of Justice Scalia, so I'd, I'd also be tempted to see him again. Certainly two great Americans. Yeah. Well, thanks, Chief, for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. We're going to wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia, Winter Holiday Edition, Uh-oh. where I'm going to try to stump Tiffany and the Chief Judge. We're teaming up here. <laughs> We're going to have to. All right. Okay. Let's do it. First question. Which justice declined to attend the Supreme Court's annual Christmas recess party, saying he preferred to keep church and state apart? <laughs> Hmm. It's a it's a modern justice. Is it someone he, currently on the court? He is not currently on the court. I'm going to guess Stevens. No, I have no idea. It's Souter. It's Justice Thurgood Marshall. Oh, okay. According to his papers, when they were released after um, after his death in 1998, a group of clerks petitioned Chief Justice Rehnquist to make changes to the annual Christmas party, such as removing the Christmas tree and not singing Christmas carols, which I think Justice Scalia would have been pretty upset about that since we know he loved the, the carols. Second question. In this case, the Supreme Court upheld the display of a menorah outside a government building, but found that a nativity scene inside a courthouse violated the Constitution. Oh, I'm terrible at case names. Well, yeah. If you can give me the the decade and maybe— This is an 80s case, isn't it? It is. It's it in is. the 80s. I'm guessing 85 or 86. 1989. It's, okay. it's the, the it's Allegheny case. Allegheny. Okay. County of Allegheny yes. versus ACLU. And this was a fractured opinion where the court decided that the nativity impermissibly endorsed Christianity because it had a prominent message that read, glory to God for the birth of Jesus Christ. But the menorah was not considered an endorsement because of its location. Third question. In 2012, the Supreme Court declined to hear the case Morgan versus Swanson, which was an appeal from the Fifth Circuit. This involved a public elementary school that prevented children from bringing this Christmas treat to school for their winter break party. Wait, this isn't the Jesus Pencils case, is it? You said it's a treat? Well, it is the Pencils case, but there was something in addition to the Jesus Pencils that they weren't allowed to bring, <laughs> which I think is silly. Oh, was it, wasn't it? it candy canes? That's correct. That's right, because there's a, there's all the candy canes with the... The explanation of how the candy canes. Yeah. yeah so right. a yes. child wanted to bring candy canes with a note about the legend of the candy cane, which right. purportedly has a tie to Christianity. This was news to me. Uh, I remember, you know, reading I've about seen the case that. I've seen um, that. years yeah. ago. Okay. Fourth question. What Supreme Court decision includes the so-called three reindeer rule? Three reindeer rule. She's killing us. <laughs> also known as the, the plastic reindeer rule, sometimes called that. It's related to the Allegheny case, but earlier. Hmm. Reindeer roll. God, man, I got to dust off my <laughs> this con wall. This is why I didn't want to play this game by myself. This is why I dragged you into it. <laughs> so the case is Lynch v. Lynch. Donnelly. Oh, yes. Lynch. gosh. 1984. I should have given you guys more information. That was I'm very I'm an vague. old man, guys. I'm 48. Uh, so uh, th- this was the case where the court upheld a town's display, holiday display, That's because right. it included a nativity, but it also had reindeer, Santa Claus, um, yes. a big sign that said season's greetings. There were, I think, stuffed animals. There were there was a Christmas tree, many other things. So not just three factors, but three <laughs> Reindeer, Literally, because there were three, okay. one, two, three reindeer. I get some credit for that. Yes. For that little comment. Okay. Uh, and the court decided that inclusion of a sufficient number of non-religious items, such as reindeer, 
ensured that the display could not be mistaken as the town's endorsement of Christianity. Fifth and final question. Oh, fifth one. Yes. Oh, man. You know I love trivia. <laughs> Which state designated its Capitol building as a public forum for holiday, holiday decorations, which led to the inclusion of a Festivus poll? <laughs> Which state? <laughs> Festivus. Not, not too far from, from, from you, where you live. Yeah, I knew it I wasn't say Georgia. Like Alabama. No, I'm going to say Louisiana. Close. It's Florida. Okay. Yes, Florida boasted a Festivus poll. We should have known that, like Florida Man. <laughs> that, yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, We've yeah. talked about Florida Man before on the podcast. So yeah. this, of course, Festivus comes from the, the famous yes, Seinfeld, Seinfeld episode. Festivus for the rest of us. But there's no word on whether they allowed the traditional feats of strength or the yeah. airing of grievances. Yeah, that's in, right. in that's the my mom's favorite. <laughs> well, I think you guys did uh, did pretty good. These were hard questions. They really were. Hard. This is not nice to do to me when I'm coming <laughs> all the way from Macon, Georgia. But well done. And thank you. Thank you so much again oh, for joining us. My pleasure. Us. Thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101, and particularly thank you to any of our new listeners from the Ricochet Audio Network. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts, and please leave us a rating if you enjoy listening. Please follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS 101. You can also email us at SCOTUS 101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. Oh,